So once again, we are reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Betsy. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be back with you. It's also good to see red and green speckled throughout. It makes me feel very festive. Uh, So for those of you who are new joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our series in Advent, looking at the birth narrative here in Matthew. And I don't know what your all's Christmas celebrations were like growing up. I mean, maybe you guys had parents that wanted to keep things so theologically grounded that you weren't allowed to celebrate anything sniffing of secular Okay, so you can have a Christmas tree because that has pagan origins. And you can't listen to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You because it doesn't mention Jesus. Okay, for me, my parents, they did a great job teaching me about the meaning of Christmas. They taught me that you know, God became a person to live with us. That's the meaning of Christmas. But as I look back on how I celebrated Christmas, I tended to use Jesus as nothing more than a springboard to do the things that I really wanted to do. Okay, so cozy evenings around the fireplace with my siblings playing video games, Uh, watching Kevin McAllister be forgotten by his parents yet another year, happens every single year, right, or going to Starbucks on a cold wintry evening to get a white peppermint, white chocolate peppermint mocha with my, yes, I did it, maybe still do it, and I didn't care what was on the red cups, what wasn't on the red, (laughs) red cups, I just wanted to do it, okay, And so however you remember Christmas, whether it was with theological precision, whether it was just trying to create your own version of one long shameless Hallmark movie, or maybe some kind of combination of the two, Advent is different. And Advent is a sacred season that's been celebrated by followers of Jesus during the long, dark days surrounding the winter solstice, going all the way back across all denominations back to the earliest church. And for the uninitiated, Advent is the Christmas buzzkill because Advent does acknowledge that God became a person to live with us. Advent does acknowledge that a fitting response to this is to create fond memories with loved ones. But Advent's main purpose is to push us underneath the warm tradition and green and red sentiment. And what we find there is a thick darkness. And the call of Advent is for us to slow down and to stare at the sorrow of the world. Hey, why not for some kind of morbid contemplation? 
but we need to look at the dark sorrow of the world so that when we do things like light candles of hope and peace, when we do things like gather around a lit Christmas tree, these symbols of Jesus healing the world actually mean something. So that's the call of Advent. And so what we're going to do tonight is we look at Joseph's first Advent, okay, the, fa- the, the father of Jesus. We're going to see how we can use this Advent season well and hopefully use it so well that it'll carry us into next year as well. So in this passage, we'll see two things about Advent. First, we'll see the darkness of Advent. And then next, number two, we'll see the actions of Advent. How do we act during Advent? Okay, so first, the darkness of Advent. Number two, the actions of Advent. So this passage starts off, and Joseph, who's betrothed, he's engaged to Mary. He's going about his day. It's just another ordinary day. He's likely in wedding planning mode. And an angel crashes into his life and essentially tells him, your virgin fiancé is now pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and you're about to become the adoptive father of the God of the universe. Okay, so this changes a lot of things for Joseph. And it's in this announcement that the angel gives him that we have the mystery and the reality that is the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully human, or as Paul puts it explicitly in Colossians 2, verse 9, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, i.e., all of the power and qualities of God and all of the power and qualities in us, except for sin, were, are, and ever will be united in this one person, Jesus Christ. That's that's the wonder of the incarnation. And it's this mystery of the incarnation, which is the reason why almost all of us, if not all of us, religious or not, intuit a certain magic or a certain spirit, you know, Within the Christmas season is why it's during Christmas in particular that we all love to, to push the boundaries of unbelief, right? So we, we revel in stories about a jolly old man from the North Pole who's somehow able to get slayed around the entire globe on a snowy night by reindeer, of all things. Okay, or watching an elf run around New York City in, in yellow spandex, okay, or yellow tights. We love these stories. Why? Because these fairy tales, okay, they, in our love for them, they betray a longing we have for a true fairy tale, right, where the ideal actually does become real. And this happened on this first Christmas so long ago. And then the angel continues in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel's telling Joseph that your fiancé's child is the long-awaited Messiah. We talked about this last week, looking looking in in Jesus' genealogy, where Joseph and his contemporaries, they would have been expecting a Messiah to come, okay, this great warrior who would save Israel from their political enemies. And at this point in time, Israel has been oppressed by Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, now Rome. Like, <laughs> what, what a list, okay? And so they're expecting this Messiah. To, so at this point, Joseph's probably thinking, okay, the Messiah's finally here. He's going to liberate me and, and my people from Rome. But what the angel says here by saying he will save his people from their sins, Jesus' Hebrew is Yeshua, which means literally just God saves. The angel's saying, no, Joseph, 
Mary's son is going to save you from a far more ancient and sinister enemy, sin. This inbuilt orientation that every human being has to rival God and to demand that and to ignore God and to demand that other people okay, bow and bend to our preferences rather than us moving out to reflect God and sacrificial love for neighbor. So this child has come to deal with sin. And this is where Advent comes in because before Joseph can break out the green and red wrapping, right, and start wrapping presents because of the magic of the child, the angel reminds him of the reason for the deepest darkness of the world, sin. And I don't know, I don't know if Joseph was thinking what you and I tend to often think, which is like, really? That's, this isn't just rhetoric. Like, I, I've often felt this way. Sin is my, in the world's deepest problem. I think if you and I are honest, we often think of things like, hey, what are my greatest problems? Okay, stuff going on with my job, or financial stress, or things with my relationships, or my mental health, right? Sin can seem sometimes just so theoretical and not as concrete as these other things we deal with, but the angel's saying, no, like, sin is the problem and the reason for the darkness of the world. And as I was thinking about why we have such a hard time believing this, I think at least for those of us in the DMV area, and probably most of middle to upper class, Western world in general, I think one reason we have a hard time believing this is because generally, generally speaking, as a rule, but you know, there, there are plenty of exceptions, we're just, we're relatively sheltered from the real evils of the world. So you ever notice that if we're going to see horror, okay, or something despicable, we'd prefer these things be packaged as entertainment, like a Netflix docuseries or a true crime podcast, right? So we can observe them from the comfort of our living room or just from the comfort of our AirPods. Like we need to keep this protective bubble that preserves our belief in the fundamental goodness of humanity. We, we need this bubble because if that bubble is needled, like by black depravity, by the real horrors that actually happen, then our mind would probably break if we were to see it. And how one person put this, this was in uh, David Fincher's movie, this movie Seven, where William Somerset, I believe was the character's name, played by, uh, what's his name, Morgan Freeman, best voice of all voices. Okay, it's the only voiceover in the film, and William Somerset, Morgan Freeman, he says, this is after he, he's a homicide detective, and after witnessing such brut human brutality, he says, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I believe the second part. And the world is a dark place indeed. And for those who've experienced, like, the depths of, of human evil, like, they, they know this. So, children having unspeakable acts done to them with no hope of rescue. Foster children terrified in an office only to have the next day come and, and they're homeless. laborers, okay, being dragged to such horrific work conditions, even while sick, even while missing their child's surgery, even while missing holidays, so that investors and shareholders can stay rich. 
many people have been subject to mass shootings, police brutality, starvation, like acts so loathsome, it would be inappropriate for me to share <laughs> these things up here. But these people know that these things that happen in the world aren't just from some humans make mistakes. Okay, they know this need for Jesus, for some God, if he's there, to actually do something about it. And we, we need to, to slow down and look at this. And lest we comfort ourselves at just thinking that wickedness is out there, okay, we also need to look within and see how we're responsible for the hurt in the world. If maybe in degree and kind we're different, okay, but we all still contribute it. And here's how one author put it. He's a musician and author named Joshua Porter. And he writes... If the world is a mess, all of us are making it, and few of us really care. With each pair of tennis shoes we purchase that enables towering conglomerates to enslave children, with each hamburger that contributes to oceans of toxic sludge dumped in water systems, with every hour racked up on screen time that drives us further from empathy and relationships, with every dollar hoarded and spent on ourselves while hunger and need rend the world. With every fuel cell of hatred piled on the burning altar of political idolatry. Beneath every complicated layer of evil, somewhere deep in the snake-tangled heart of the world's darkness is us. The world is dark indeed, both out there and in our own hearts. And the call of Advent is not to ignore the dark, but it's also not to wallow in the dark okay, and fall into despair. It's to look at it courageously. Because when we look into the dark, what happens is these candles here finally begin to mean something. Because if we don't, then, then we have to ask, hope for what? Peace from what? But when we look into the dark, what happens is these candles of hope and peace begin to signify something profound. And it's as if the angel's pronouncement here that Joseph, God has come in through your fiance bearing this child. He's going to save the world from sin. Essentially what the angel's telling him is God is taking that Ernest Hemingway quote, quote and revising it. Where God says, I did make the world a fine place. It became horribly painful and disordered through sin. And it is worth fighting for. And I will fight for it. And so God fights for it in us. But he doesn't do it from afar. He doesn't do it by sending a legion of angels to do his bidding. God becomes small. God enters into our tear-stained, blood-soaked battlefield. Being born not into a picturesque tiny home out in the mountains, okay, but into a smelly cave to two poor teenagers. And then he subjects himself voluntarily to the worst of human impulses by allowing himself to be nailed to a block of wood. And by doing so, subversively defeats evil. Okay, he takes the arrow of evil and bends it back on in on itself by rising again from the dead and then promising to return and renew the world. And this is good news because by God first coming as a ma in a manger, he enables anyone who will receive Jesus by faith to enter into his kingdom by grace. And Jesus will return in his second advent as a judge. 
And this means all victims of brutality will receive justice. And all victimizers of horror will receive justice. This is a rescue that only God could provide and only God has provided. And so what Advent is for us is, is it's essentially the long winter in between Jesus' two comings. His first coming in a manger and then his second coming when he returns to judge and renew the world. And so what we do during this Advent season is we, we can't forget that it's winter because if we forget the cold, we'll forget the spring is coming. And we can't forget the cries of the world and the aches of our own hearts because when we do, we don't look at these candles with the kind of quiet, defiant, and resilient hope that only comes from having an assurance in Jesus. And we don't sing Christmas carols and gather around the Christmas trees with loved ones with the swell of gratitude that can only come from knowing that he who first came in a manger will one day come to end winter and turn it into spring. And so the darkness of Advent, or Advent doesn't mean anything unless we look into the darkness because it's in the darkness that we see why Jesus matters. Okay, and we see why we are supposed to have joy as we look at these candles, as we sing Christmas carols. Okay, so that's number one, the, the darkness of Advent. Okay, this isn't me trying to bring you down during this Christmas season. Okay, I, I love all the Christmas sentiment as much as anyone. I mean, I made all my high school friends a Christmas mixtape so they could play in their cars. Okay, but there's a reason the church has celebrated this season with this kind of solemnity throughout the ages. Okay, and I hope we do too. So that's first, the, the darkness of Advent. Number two, okay, so in, in addition to orienting our perspective, what are the actions of Advent? So notice, if we're in a long winter now, notice the long winter that Joseph and Mary are in. So it says in verse 18 that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they slept together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So just imagine how painful this conversation much have, must have been for the two of them. Hey, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Oh, don't worry. It's from the Holy Spirit. And what does Joseph do? So it says in verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, we don't hear, we don't know much about Joseph, but from what we know, he's a good dude. So the law of the day, he had every right to take Mary to court and to shame her publicly. I mean, part of the reason was for this, for this was because there was such an emphasis on knowing who was coming through your family line. But he decides not to do it. Like he could, I mean, I can't even imagine what his, imagine, you know, being engaged to someone and then you find out they're pregnant and you know you're not the parent. And it says he's unwilling to put her shame and resolves to divorce her quietly. And Jen Wilkin, a Bible teacher, she, she speculates also that maybe Joseph resolves to do this in part because like he's sensing that maybe the reason why Mary's having such a, like from his perspective, Mary's having a hard time getting her story straight is because she's been misused in some way. And so he doesn't want to just heap and pile on shame any further by shaming her publicly. Okay, so he, he resolves to divorce her quietly. It's amazing. And then we continue, verse 20, but as he considered these things, so as he considers divorcing her quietly, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take, do not fear, it's interesting, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then note what Joseph does. Okay, so verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. So Joseph is in an extremely confusing and painful situation. He hears something that makes no sense. And what does he do? He hears God's word and he obeys. And what comes from this ordinary, just non-sexy, unseen obedience that Joseph does? Because what Joseph here, what he's also doing is I don't think we realize the cost of this because if he divorces Mary, essentially he is now free because in this shame and honor culture, people, they do math. And if they do get married, what's going to happen is they're going to do the math and they're going to see that she was pregnant before they, like, before they got married. And so either they slept with one another before marriage or Mary cheated on Joseph. Okay, so both causes for extreme ostracism and reproach in this shame and honor culture. And so Joseph can either sever ties with Mary and keep his honor and connections, or he can bear Mary's reproach with her. And now probably for the rest of their life, okay, they don't have a rep, well, they do have a reputation, it's a bad one, and they don't have connections in their community. But yet Joseph chooses costly obedience. And what happens through this costly obedience, okay, so now, because if he didn't obey, Mary also probably would have been just a step away from starvation for the rest of her life. Okay, not being married to a man and no one wanting to marry her. And through this obedience, not only does he preserve Mary, and then through Mary, Jesus is able to come into the world, but from what we know in the Gospels, Joseph was an extremely important figure in Jesus' life. Later on in Matthew, we'll see that when Jesus goes to his hometown to preach, people know him as Joseph's son. Like, that's the main way they know him. And also, scholars are pretty sure that Joseph was the main person responsible for teaching Jesus, remember Jesus was fully human, teaching Joseph the scriptures as he was growing up as a child. So Joseph was responsible essentially for when Jesus enters into his ministry and he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, who was the one responsible for teaching Jesus those scriptures that he pulled from to defend himself and to procure salvation for you and me? He probably learned those passages from his father. Where did Jesus learn to do those countercultural and incredible acts of care for the weak and the vulnerable? Probably from his mother and father. Okay, who did Jesus learn the, the verses from when he was in his passion and leading up to the crucifixion on the cross itself? Probably from his dad. And what's even more striking is from what we can tell, Joseph probably died when Jesus was a young kid, probably at early teens. So Joseph didn't even get to see the fruit of his obedience. And one of the points here is simple obedience really matters. Okay, probably most of all when you're in a season where you're in an Advent season, a wintry season where it's painful, right, and things aren't going as you hoped and it's easy to curve in on ourselves and just live for ourselves rather than o obeying the Lord for love of him and love toward neighbor. But obedience, and we saw this during our Ten Commandments series, that when you obey, this is, this is the best thing that you can do for those you love. Why? Because when you obey God, his law, which reflects his love and his character, 
you make heaven and earth intersect. It is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth intersect when you obey. Okay, for Joseph, it happened literally. Okay, heaven and earth intersected in the person of Jesus. Okay, but for us, the kind of life that we create when we o- obey God, just like take some basic, this isn't hard or abstract, just take some basic examples. Imagine what every home would look like if every spouse moved toward their spouse with compassion and self-sacrificial love rather than bitterness and frustration. What would that do for the children? What would that do for, for the parents? Okay, what would each home look like if parents didn't crush their children's spirit but nurtured them and children honored and obeyed their mom and dad? For you, as a, if you're an employer or a manager, like what would things look like if you treated those who work for you and underneath you by pri- prioritizing their well-being more than what they produce for you? Or as an employee, okay, maybe, pr- maybe especially post-COVID where m- many of us work from home, you don't take advantage of your employer by working hard and doing good and competent work. Okay, what would happen if our entire church had worn-out Bibles and worn-out dinner tables from communing with God so much on our own and then having our neighbors and those in our church family over for meals? even just very simple meals of soup and bread, you sharing the gospel with someone else. And one of the ways I've most seen the power of this, just ordinary obedience like Joseph when you don't see the fruit, is so Kelsey, my wife, she accepted Jesus after college. And I remember just asking her, like, what was it that led you to coming in faith in Jesus? And she says, well, you know, a number of things, but... When I was in college, there was this girl I met named Lauren McCain, and Lauren was one of the most just like gracious and compassionate people I'd ever met. I met her as a freshman when when Lauren was a freshman, and one day Lauren loved me enough to tell me about Jesus, and I was like, ah, you know, thanks but no thanks, and, you know, went, went, went about her way, but then, you know, roughly four years later, Kelsey did come to to faith in Jesus. And Lauren was a huge part of this reason because she saw what a Christian could be when she witnessed this woman's life. And for those of you who don't know who Lauren was, she was one of She was one of the the 32 victims of the shooting that took place in spring of 2007 on Virginia Tech campus while we were there. And I just remember Kelsey saying, I I wish so badly that I could tell Lauren, like, you are one of the biggest reasons why I'm a Christian. Lauren, like Joseph, never saw the fruit of her willingness to put herself out there, at least in this life. And so wherever you're at, you know, you are like Joseph to a degree where you are, you are in a long winter and a lot of God's commands will seem boring, hard. You're also like a Lauren 
in the sense of you do need to look at the brevity of life in the face and understand you, you do not know what tonight or tomorrow will bring. And so how you treat your family, your friends, your coworkers matters. And God will use your obedience okay, in ways that you can't possibly comprehend. And so this Advent, let's look into the darkness and sorrow of the world. Okay, so that as we do, these lights of hope and peace that signify Jesus' healing actually mean something. And then move out in obedience for love of God expressed in love of neighbor for the glory of the one who one day will end winter and usher in spring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will help us to use the Advent season well. In whatever way is fitting, given our temperament and station in life, to actually slow down away from our phones and our jobs and our tasks to think about how much the world hurts and to be willing to explore the just innermost parts of our soul that hurt, have been hurt, are angry, so that we're no longer indifferent toward Jesus, and so that as we do all the great and fun things we love to do during the Christmas season, it's not that Jesus is on the side giving us a convenient reason to have these fun things, but he is our only grounds for hope in this life and the next. And so I thank you so much that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to you and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in life and death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.